Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. More on that in a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Doug Petcash takes a look at Ohio's loss of its bellwether reputation in presidential elections and talks with the first Latina member of the Columbus City Council. In about 25 minutes, Ariane Daytil takes an in-depth look at the nation's teacher shortage and efforts to increase the ranks. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the director of cognitive neurology at Ohio State University. He'll talk about various forms of dementia. I'm Kate Burdett. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. You may not know, but problem gambling is the addiction with the highest suicide rate of all the addictions. The Problem Gambling Network of Ohio is a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to building a network of support for those impacted by gambling through collaboration, education, and research. Here to talk with us about this issue, how many people are affected, and resources available to help is the executive director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio, Derek Longmire. Hi, Derek. Hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And, um... This is a pretty serious topic that we're we're discussing today, and luckily there's an organization like yours to help people. What can you tell me about the link between problem gambling and declining mental health and ultimately suicide? Well, we know about 38% of those that have a gambling disorder will contemplate suicide, and about 20% or one of five of those with a gambling disorder will attempt suicide. And it's the greatest link between a an addiction and suicide than any other addiction. So really important to be mindful of it throughout all times of the year, uh, but especially now as we look at Suicide Prevention Month. That is a staggering statistic. Now, we've had the legalized sports betting here in Ohio for nearly a year now. Can you tell me, is there a big problem you're detecting with gambling in the Buckeye State? One of our main forms of measurement is calls to the Ohio Problem Gambling Helpline, and those Calls are managed 24 7, 365. So, uh, whether you're calling day or night, there's going to be a specialist there to answer those calls. And we've seen overall a 70% increase in total call volume uh, since January 1st compared to last year. Uh, and sports betting is certainly the, the primary reason for that increased call. Is it true that there are nearly 900,000 Ohioans that are at risk for a gambling disorder? Yes, and that's based on the most recent data that we have available, which is now about five years old. Uh, what we're waiting on now is the results from the most recent survey that was conducted at the end of 2022. And that's not available yet, but we expect that number to be even higher. Are there free resources available for people that are perhaps concerned they might have a problem or a loved one might have a gambling problem? It is good to be a Buckeye, and we have... a phenomenal support from the leadership of the state. And we do have resources available at no cost to uh, our Ohioans through a couple of campaigns that we have uh, and additional resources from there. Uh, the first is Pause Before You Play, and it has a corresponding website, pausebeforeyouplay.org. And the focus there is to really make sure that if you're placing that first bet or that next bet, you're doing so in a way to mitigate the risk as much as possible. Uh, we know that gambling is never a, a fully risk-free activity, but there's certainly some things that you can do to make sure that you're mitigating that risk. Derek Longmire is executive director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. And before we are 
finished with September, which is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. We're talking about a pretty interesting and serious topic. It's gambling addiction and the fact that gambling addiction of all of the addictions is the one that has shown by research to lead to suicide most often. Now, Derek, tell me about some of the warning signs that people should be on the lookout for in their own gambling behavior or that of a loved one. Uh, For your own gambling behavior, really the the first question to ask yourself is, is this still fun? And as we look at gambling and we at Problem Gambling Network of Ohio are neutral related to gambling, so we're not for it, we're not against it. Uh, But we really want to ensure that those who are placing those bets are doing so with their entertainment dollars and are out to have fun. So if it's no longer fun, that's certainly a huge warning sign. And two other pieces is really related to setting limits. And those limits of both time spent. So are you spending more time than you anticipated, as well as dollars spent? So are you just spending more money than you you plan on? So for for individuals, those are certainly things to be aware of. Uh, For loved ones, um, recognize loved ones. Oftentimes, you can have better insight into the behaviors and and struggles of, of that person because they may be... Uh, caught up in in the addiction and they not recognize it themselves. So just being really mindful about um, are they lying or hiding how much time and money they're spending on gambling? Uh, is there a sudden decrease in, in work performance or engaging with family? Are they occupied and all they want to talk about is gambling and how much money they're winning? Uh, just in our brains, we remember those wins a whole lot more than we remember those losses. So those just, are just some important things to be aware of and kind of just be attuned to as you have those conversations. And I think you made a really important point as well, that as the executive director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio, you and your organization are are neutral on the topic. You're not saying this is a good or a bad thing. You're just here to provide resources and information for those who may be concerned or want to be educated so that things don't get out of hand. To add to that, we recognize that um, betting is a big part of Ohio culture. And as we look at the lottery going back to the 70s and even with the casinos, it was because of Ohio, Ohioans and Ohio voters that brought them here. As we look at sports betting, the state legislature chose to expand sports betting in the state, and that's because they are doing what their constituents wanted. So our focus really is ensuring that the help and resources are available to those who need it. And what would you say are the criteria for a, a gambling disorder? What are kind of the, the things on the checklist? You mentioned some of the warning signs, but what exactly makes for a gambling problem? And when we look at the criteria for gambling disorder, we look at the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual uh, to, to categorize that. So um, being preoccupied is, is certainly an element there. If you're chasing your losses, then so you're spending, you've lost, and you're trying to chase those losses. Um, that's another warning sign. And overall, there's there's 10 uh, warning signs or risk factors within that uh, to be mindful of. And certainly, you can look at the criteria to, to determine the best thing to do, though, is to go to pausebeforeyouplay.org and take the quiz, because that's going to suss out some of those um, warning signs and really better attune where you're at in your relationship to gambling. All of these valuable resources available thanks to the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. Their helpline number is 1-800-589-9966. And an important reminder, anyone having suicidal thoughts should call the new 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Derek Longmire, thank you so much for your time today and for the important work that you're doing with the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. Thank you so much for the opportunity and giving us the chance to really share this important information.
And thank you for joining us on Columbus Perspective. I'm Kate Burdett. I'm Doug Petcash. This week on Face the State, history may be changing. Ohio typically mirrors the U.S. in presidential elections, but that's changing. We'll talk about why. And this Hispanic Heritage Month, we talk with the first Latina on the Columbus City Council, the impact she's having on her community. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning, everyone. I'm Doug Petcash. I'm the new anchor of Face the State, and I'm honored to take over this program that has had a long line of distinguished moderators. I came to Columbus from 10TV's sister station in Boise, Idaho, where I hosted a similar politics, government, and public affairs show for eight years. As the anchors before me, my goal is to bring you the latest news, information, and analysis on the issues that affect your lives, as well as interviews with Ohio's lawmakers and policymakers. But I'm also going to take opportunities to let you know what's going on in our communities and introduce you to the organizations and people who are making a difference or just doing interesting things. So I'd appreciate it if you'd join me over the coming weeks and hopefully years here on Face the State. When it comes to the presidential election, Ohio voters almost always favor the winning candidate. It's happened in every election since 1896, except for three times, 1944, 1960, and in 2020, when Ohio voted for then-incumbent Donald Trump. Could Ohio's long-standing history of being a bellwether state be just that, history? I'm joined this morning by Kyle Kondik, who has studied Ohio's history in presidential elections. He's currently the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Kyle, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start there. Is Ohio's history of being a bellwether state now just that, history? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I joked recently that I you know I wrote a book in 2016 called The Bellwether about Ohio's history of you know often voting or almost always voting for the presidential winner and and often or almost always um, voting very close to what the national popular vote was. But the book uh, you know quickly went from current events to history in 2016 as Ohio did vote for the winner, but it voted for Trump by eight points. Uh, Trump lost the popular vote by two points, so that was like a ten point uh, difference. And that gap between how Ohio voted and how the nation voted uh, only expanded in 2020. And so um, there are certain aspects of the the kind of Donald Trump political realignment. Um, It's been bad for Republicans in certain places, but it's been good for them in others. And um, the Midwest, broadly speaking, I think it's generally been good for them. And Ohio is is, is really stands out uh, in that regard. You mentioned the, the Trump realignment. Can you talk more about that? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, basically what we've seen across the country uh, is that, you know, the, the Trump kind of lost uh, some voters in um, kind of affluent, uh, 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 kind of upscale, highly educated suburban places. And, of course, those sorts of places exist in Ohio. Like if you're in central Ohio, like like Upper Arlington, which used to be pretty Republican leaning and now really isn't anymore. Um, but the trade-off there was that Trump did do better in particularly kind of smaller town, rural areas that are, are, are pretty heavily white uh, and also don't necessarily have particularly high levels of four-year college attainment. And 
And, you know, there are lots of places across Ohio that sort of fit that description. Uh, and Trump either turned some really red places even even redder. You can see that in like north, northwest and western Ohio. Uh, and also he took some places that maybe had been competitive in the past or even Democratic leaning, like the Youngstown Warren area or certain parts of eastern and northern Ohio uh, and either made them purple or made them red. And just the trade off in Ohio, again, with, with those those different trends, it just really has been bad for Democrats and good for Republicans. And so those are the trends you're talking about in what you call the collar counties around the counties that are home to the three major metropolitan areas of Columbus, Cincinnati and Cleveland. Yeah, look, when you, when you, again, when you look at some, some sort of suburban or exurban counties across the country, you know, and that's the, and, and it, I'm defining like collar counties as the counties that touch in Ohio, the three big urban counties, Cuyahoga, Cleveland, Franklin, Columbus, and Hamilton, uh, Cincinnati. Um, you know, in some places you've seen a democratic, you know, consistent democratic trend in those kinds of places in the Trump era. Well, in Ohio, uh, a lot of those uh, collar counties have, have actually gotten redder uh, over the course of the, you know, the, the time that Trump has been around running for president in 2016 and, and 2020. You know, yeah, there are some positive signs like for Democrats in like Delaware County, which historically is, is arguably the kind of the most Republican or one of the most Republican counties in Ohio. But, you know, Delaware has trended Democratic, but it still votes Republican for president. Uh, a couple other places in Southwest Ohio. But if you look at like Northeast Ohio and some of the, uh, the counties that, that touch Chicago County, you know, a lot of those places have just gotten redder and presidential elections going from uh, Obama's last election in 2012 to 2020. 2016 and 2020. And so, again, it's like easy to find a lot of negative signs for Democrats in the state. It's not that hard or it's not that easy to find places, you know, po places where there have been positive trends for Democrats in the state. You balance it all out uh, and it's just it sort of shifted the political center of gravity in the state uh, in presidential elections and in other elections, too, uh, more toward the Republicans. I don't know if you get into making predictions or not, but what are you expecting based on trends to see from Ohio voters in 2024? I think, look, I think it'd be a surprise if, if the Republicans did not win the state for president. I think it probably would mean that something um, would have gone wrong for the presidential candidate uh, for the Republican side and the Democratic candidate, be it Joe Biden or someone else, um, is, is you know winning nationally, going away. Um, you know, I think for the, probably the more interesting race in Ohio is Sherrod Brown's reelection race, which I think is really a, a toss up. I think Brown probably will do better. He needs to do better, I think, than, than the Democratic presidential nominee in Ohio. It's just a question of how much better can he do? Uh, you know, in in this particular era we're in now, uh, there's just much more of a correlation generally between presidential results and, and you know down ballot results for you know for U.S. House and for uh, U.S. Senate. And so uh, it may be that you know a generation ago, Sherrod Brown would have been um, in better shape maybe than, than he is now. But um, I do still think it's you know it's it, it, it's there for for Brown to potentially win. But again, he's going to need some people to split their tickets in all likelihood. Kyle Kondik with the uh, Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Thank you for your insight on this very interesting topic now as we wait and see what happens coming up in future elections. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kyle. So uh, we've been talking about Ohio's longstanding history of being a bellwether. But, um, you know, really, what is bellwether? Where does that term come from in the first place? I was curious, so I looked it up on merriamwebster.com. First of all, it has nothing to do with the weather. The term first appeared in English way back in the 15th century. Merriam-Webster explains, since long ago, it has been common practice for shepherds to hang a bell around the neck of one sheep in their flock, thereby designating it the lead sheep. 
This animal was historically called the bellwether, a word formed by a combination of the Middle English words bell, meaning bell, like ring a bell, and weather, a noun that refers to a male sheep. It eventually followed that bellwether would come to refer to someone who takes initiative or who actively establishes a trend that is taken up by others. So will Ohio once again be the lead sheep or just part of the flock when it comes to presidential elections? We'll find out. The next Republican presidential debate is Wednesday, September 27th. At least six candidates appear to have qualified, including former President Donald Trump. If you remember, Trump did not take part in the first debate. It's unclear if that will happen this time around. Among those who have qualified, Mr. Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, and Ohio native and entrepreneur, Vivek Ramaswamy. Ohio's Select Committee on Rail Safety approved its 132-page report. It's the product of months of investigation and testimony after the train derailment in East Palestine earlier this year. The committee is recommending the state test the soil for at least the next two decades. They also want increased monitoring of agricultural products coming out of the region. At the federal level, a form of the Railway Safety Act of 2023 has made it out of committee. It would strengthen regulations for railroads. Still ahead this morning, it is the start of Hispanic Heritage Month. There are several events throughout the next few weeks. Next, a conversation about the importance of the month from the first Latina member of the Columbus City Council. If you have Ohio Medicaid, you need to act now. All Medicaid members are required to renew their health coverage. If you are no longer eligible, trained navigators can help for free. Call Get Covered Ohio at 833-628-4467 or visit getcoveredohio.org. This project is supported by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as part of a financial assistance award totaling $2.33 million with 100% funding by CMS slash HHS and do not necessarily represent the official views of the U.S. government. Sponsored by the Ohio Association of Food Banks, aired by OAB and the station. Lexi spent more than six years in foster care. Before I was adopted, I felt alone. With help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, Lexi now has a forever family and the foundation for a bright future. Adoption changed me for the better. I feel like I can be whoever I want to be. You can help find permanent homes for children still lingering in foster care. Learn more at DaveThomasFoundation.org. Were you exposed to hazardous materials while serving in the military and have an illness or condition as a result? If so, you may be eligible for VA benefits and services. Whether you need health care or want to file a disability compensation claim related to military exposures, VA is here to help. Visit va.gov forward slash military dash exposures to learn more and apply today. You served your country. Now let VA serve you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Across the country, cities are celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. Here in Columbus, City Hall this week was lit up to celebrate Latino Heritage Month and runs through mid-October. For the next several weeks, people here in Columbus are celebrating the histories, cultures, and contributions of Americans whose ancestors came from Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central and South America. Many of the events are sponsored by the city and are hosted by the Office of Council Member Lourdes Barroso de Padilla and the Columbus Latino Heritage Month Committee. This morning, I want to welcome in the first Latina elected to the city council, Lord Esperoso de Padilla, to the Face the State desk. Good morning. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what does it mean to you to be the first Latina on the city council? Um, I mean, 
very few people will reach a time where you're the first of anything, right? And to be a groundbreaker. I mean, I think on many levels, you know, my parents are Cuban. And so to be in a place where democracy was literally stripped from them Mm -hmm. and to kind of come full circle and see their daughter quite literally be part of and leading the democratic process um, is emotional on a very personal level. And then I think, you know, growing up in the city of Columbus, often being the only Latina, my parents came here in the 70s. My dad owned the first Latino food market here in the city of Columbus. Um, And we're always very involved and integrated in the community. And so to now be more commonplace, right, Mm -hmm. to have businesses and restaurants and to now have a city council member where other uh, Latinos can see, especially Latina girls, can see someone to look up to. I was going to ask if you see yourself as a a role model or as an inspiration. Uh, I mean, I certainly hope and strive to be a role model every day. I think, you know, it was interesting. We were at an event last night. It was a women-centric event for Latinas, and we talked about, you know, not seeing ourselves in the media, not seeing ourselves um, in the community. And I think, you know, you always want to strive to be and do more. And I think especially for our kids whose parents have sacrificed so much to come here, they crossed an ocean or a desert. Um, They're doing that for the betterment of their children. So when their children can see what they can become, um, I mean, that's that's an amazing responsibility and honor. The Latino Heritage Festival and Parade was held, uh, but there are other events coming up. And some of those are the Latino Policy Day on September 28th, uh, Minority Business Certification event on October 15th, and a Latino art show coming up on October 13th. What will people be able to do, see, and get from these events? Sure. So all of the events we tried to hit on different sectors of the community, right? So the parade was about bringing pride and a sense of belonging. Um, For the certification event, we've been working to remove barriers specifically for immigrant, migrant, um, and refugee businesses in the city of Columbus and getting certification through um, the city, which opens up the doors of opportunities for business. Um, We have a policy day where we'll talk about uh, minors who cross the border on their own and what does the family unification look like and what does support for those minors look like once they come to this country. And then the last piece is the art show, where it's really celebrating through the arts, both, um, you know, through uh, mixed media and also performing arts, right? So Mm -hmm. we really tried to show all facets of the community and how we elevate and pour into them and remove barriers for all of those folks. How big and vibrant is the Latino community here in Columbus? Sure. So if you look at the region, the central Ohio region, uh, and you took all of the Latinos, right, um, through central Ohio, and you put them in one area, we'd be roughly the size of Dayton. Okay. Right. So about 150,000 people. Um, So that's pretty significant in terms of we've actually, if you look at the amount of Latinos in the state of Ohio from the 80s, we've actually tripled in size and we're going to continue to grow. We just have a few seconds left. How important is it to hold events like this now in its second year? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important for communities. I mean, they're choosing us as their place to live, right? When folks come to Columbus, immigrants, migrants, and refugees are the number one factor behind our population growth. They add to our local economy. They add to our culture. They make this the kind of city that people want to come and be a part of. And so that's important to celebrate, elevate, and pour into. 
Councilwoman, thank you so much for Absolutely. being here today. Enjoy the me. next month. And thank best you, wishes on all the events. I hope, <laughs> yes. I hope to see everyone out at one of the events throughout the month. Sounds like a lot of good information and a lot of good fun, too. Great. And be sure to follow us on Latino Heritage CBUS on all social media channels. And then we also have a website, latinoheritagecbus.com. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thank you for joining me this morning on Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. Have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll see you back here next week. That's again Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. I'm Tracy Townsend. We are in the middle of what many are calling a nationwide teacher shortage. And one question looms, who's going to teach America's children when people don't want to teach anymore? Well, research has found that teachers impact student achievement more than any other aspect of schooling. But as our Verify team reports, many in the profession say they've had enough. With your Verify, I'm Ariante Till. I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know how much longer I have in me. Am I burned out? Yes. I've been burned out for quite some time. That stress is compounding. I need a pep talk right now because I'm not sure if I can come back Monday at this point. Violetta Duran is a high school English teacher with nearly 20 years of experience. She's burned out and she's not alone. According to a 2022 Gallup survey of more than 12,000 workers across 14 industries, including other high-stress careers like healthcare and law, teachers in K-12 education are the most burned out. The National Center for Education Statistics says nearly half of all public schools reported full or part-time teaching vacancies that they were unable to fill in 2022. The result? Larger class sizes and less support for the teachers who remain. The impact is massive. Every student you add on top of that exponentially increases the difficulty in being able to aid every student. Aid that research shows students sorely need following years of disrupted learning caused by the pandemic. And teachers say they don't have the bandwidth to give. But class size is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what students and teachers are struggling with right now. Teachers say when they return to the classroom full time, students were less engaged and more prone to behavioral issues. Verify spoke to several current and former teachers who say they're burning out for two main reasons, being overworked and underpaid. Teachers say those factors aren't new, but they've reached a breaking point, a breaking point that might cause your child's teacher to leave the classroom for good. My pay since I started has not quite doubled, but my rent has tripled. Throughout her career, Duran's salary hasn't kept up with the cost of living. The average teacher salary in the U.S. during the 2021 to 2022 school year was $66,432. Adjust that for inflation, and it's less than teachers made 10 years ago, according to the National Education Association. And teachers' salaries are not increasing at the same rate as their workload. According to survey data from research organization RAND, nearly 60% of teachers reported working more than they did before the pandemic, with teachers working six more hours per week on average. The main reason? Teachers had to dedicate more time to creating lesson plans to keep students engaged. They kind of unlearned how to be students. Data from McKinsey & Company, a research and consulting group, found that on average, K-12 students fell behind by five months in mathematics and four months in reading than they were expected to be at the end of the 2021 to 2022 school year. Teachers now have to spend more time to help their students catch up. I 
really became very poor at managing my personal time. Middle school band teacher Sarah Coyce quit in 2021. My mental health has improved leaps and bounds. I started doing things I enjoy. Just And it was actually, some of it was music. I realized how much I had stepped away from the thing I loved that got me into teaching in the first place. Both pay and workload issues are even worse for teachers of color. A recent Center for American Progress study found that black teachers earn, on average, $2,700 less per year than white teachers. Black teachers disproportionately teach in high-poverty schools, where teachers earn even less. And to make matters worse... Oftentimes, educators of color are returning to the scene of the crime, so to speak. Um, They were students in our school system or students in school systems that, you know, where they felt oftentimes very undersupported. Teachers of color told Verify they often have to take on extra responsibilities compared to their white peers. Evan Shin was one of those teachers. Now he's an instructional coach providing mentorship and guidance to teachers in the classroom. He says white teachers often tasked him with disciplining students of color in their classrooms just because he's black. It wears on you. It becomes a brown and black tax. ¿Puedes cambiar de opinión? Sí. A 2018 study of Latino teachers found a similar pattern. Many bilingual educators reported that they often took on extra responsibilities, like translating and weren't compensated. Regardless of race, teachers burning out and leaving the profession is nothing new. Richard Ingersoll, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies trends in the teaching workforce, found that for the last two decades... Between 40 and 50 percent of those who go into teaching are gone within the first five years. A statistic he says his research still supports today. So what's different now? America's teaching pipeline is drying up. We're losing teachers faster than we can get new ones in. A report from the National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers union, revealed that more than half of their teachers in 2021 said they were more likely to quit or retire early because of ongoing job stress. On top of that, less people are studying to become teachers. Most states require teachers to at least have a bachelor's degree to teach at any grade level. The majority of teachers have a degree in education. But according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics, the percent of college grads earning a bachelor's degree in education is roughly half of what it was in 1970, dropping from more than 170,000 to less than 90,000 in 2019. I feel like teachers have been screaming, there's a crisis, there's a crisis, there's a crisis, and nobody's listening. So who's going to teach America's children when that pipeline dries up? It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. A crisis is growing in America's K-12 schools. According to the data from the National Center for Education Statistics, the percent of college grads earning a bachelor's degree in education is roughly half of what it was in 1970, dropping from more than 170,000 to less than 90,000 in 2019. Coupled with high rates of early retirement and stress-induced career changes, the teacher pool is drying up. I mean, it's a crisis in my opinion. It's not going to get better without taking some intentional uh, steps to to make it better. So who's going to teach America's children? That question has school districts, lawmakers, universities, and educational organizations scrambling to find answers before it's too late. One strategy, at least at the state level, has been lowering standards and lowering requirements for entry into teaching. That's Heather Pesky, president of the National Council on Teacher Quality. In addition to having a bachelor's degree, most states used to require teachers to pass a teaching certification exam before being allowed to teach. 
But since 2020, Pesky says at least 12 states have removed or lowered the requirements for teachers to get that certification. Meaning in places like Alabama and Missouri, even if teaching candidates don't pass the state exam, they could still be given a license to teach. A change that Tanya Chestnut, a board member for Alabama State Board of Education, justified by saying, when you're in a crisis, you tend to do things you probably would not ordinarily do. I think this will definitely bring some relief without compromising the quality of education. High school English teacher Violeta Duran and middle school instructional coach Evan Shin aren't as optimistic. They worry lowering standards will result in students getting an underqualified teacher. I think there is a danger in that. We are just putting people in classrooms that are not uh, credentialed or who are not uh, ready to be in the classroom. But because of the fact that we're looking for a warm body, um, we are saying like, oh, okay, well, good enough. But Pesky says it's not enough. This will result in a less effective teacher workforce. And that's the opposite of what our students need, particularly now on the heels of this pandemic. University of Pennsylvania professor Richard Ingersoll has studied teachers and their working conditions for more than 20 years. He says these desperate measures of lowering standards to teach will only make more teachers leave the profession. Generally, the less prepared people, the emergency and temporary licenses, for instance, that are issued, Those people quit at higher rates. His research already showed that nearly half of teachers with proper training leave the profession within the first five years. Nonprofit organizations are also scrambling to find solutions to the teacher shortage crisis. Transcend is a nonprofit that works with schools to test innovative ways to help teachers enter and stay in the profession. They say they've seen success elevating people from non-teaching roles like coaches and parents into teaching roles for the short term to ease the burden on existing teachers. Steve Carlin, a former superintendent in the rural Garden City School District in southwest Kansas, had a similar idea 15 years ago. Back then, Carlin says his open teaching positions were mostly in high school math and science classes. To fill those roles, he'd take elementary school teacher candidates that he didn't have classrooms for and pay for their training and then put them in those high school classrooms. And that worked until 2016. But then the teaching shortages became so problematic that... We haven't been able to utilize that strategy because we can't even fill all of our elementary classrooms. So Carlin dipped into his pool of substitute teachers to fill those roles. But now... The pool is completely dry. While schools are trying to find ways to fill their vacancies, the federal government is trying to address teacher shortages with money. Let's give public school teachers a raise. Two proposals in Congress aim to do just that. The Pay Teachers Act, introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders in March, and the American Teacher Act, introduced by Representative Frederica Wilson in the House in February. If passed, they would set a minimum starting salary of $60,000 for all U.S. public school teachers, a big jump from the national average starting salary of 41770 in the 2020 to 2021 school year. Neither bill has been voted on, but bipartisan support for both is growing. There's also money for teachers baked into legislation passed during the pandemic. In March 2021, the American Rescue Plan Act allocated $130 billion to K-12 schools. The White House says schools can use that money to invest in teacher pipeline programs, increase teacher salaries, and hire more teachers. The U.S. Departments of Education and Labor issued a joint statement to state lawmakers and administrators, urging them to use this relief money to specifically increase pay for teachers. But Duran says... That isn't happening at her school. She says schools are hesitant to spend the money on long-term investments because they worry the aid will eventually run out, leaving schools with salaries they can't afford to pay. But money doesn't have to come from the federal government or go to the schools directly. 
The University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Education is using private funding from alumni and supporters to incentivize more people to become teachers. We're saying to any student who wants to come into any of our 15 different teacher education programs that we will pay the cost of their tuition, their testing fees, and their licensing fees. She says in exchange, the students must pledge to teach in Wisconsin public schools for three to four years. The $25 million privately funded program launched in August of 2020 also offers mentorship and professional development support for alums. Support from a program that former teacher Sarah Coys wishes she had during the early years of her teaching. I think there's a lot of support for first-year teachers. And I think people think, oh, after your second or third year, you're good to go. You're a pro. But I think that those supports need to stay in place. Duran, who teaches in Southern California, says she'd like to see Wisconsin's pledge program be adopted by more schools. I see it as a positive, like any program that can do that. I mean, it would be great if, you know, UCLA could do that or USC. So what do current teachers think will help inspire others to join this career path? For a long time, high school teacher Joaquin Rodriguez says passion alone was what sparked that interest. But now... When you have that burnout and that fatigue, that passion piece is the first thing to go. Educators like Rodriguez, Shin, and Duran say they're still hanging on. And when they ask themselves why they're still doing this... At the end of the day, it's the students. There's an energy that they bring that is unmatched. Even just showing care and concern from students sometimes, that is enough to kind of be like, okay, we're going to be okay. With your Verify, I'm Ariante Till. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We put our lives on the line for our country. We braved the unknown. We did what we were told. And we lit up. Our cigarette packs were as valuable as the packs on our back. Maybe more. At one point, cigarettes were part of our daily ration. Smoke them if you got them. And boy, we were smoking them. Bumming a smoke was the norm. It was an escape from the reality of dirt, sweat, and forgetting how many days you were so far from home. Never had to worry so long as you had a light and the smoking lamp was lit. If that was you then, get your lungs screened now. Surviving lung cancer starts with a scan. Learn more at ScreenYourLungs.org. And thank you for your service. This PSA was made possible by industry funding and guidance from lung cancer patient groups. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Douglas Shari, who is the Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State University's Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for talking to us. Can you tell us about the center? Oh, certainly. We have a large, uh, do a lot of clinical research. Uh, so this is uh, research on individuals to try to find better diagnostic ways and treatments for people with cognitive disorders. So this would be like um, people that might have dementia, memory loss, Alzheimer's, uh, things like that. And so the the center uh, deals with research for those areas. Uh, it also has a large education component. So we have a 
a fellow that we train, we train residents, et cetera, to learn more about these uh, disorders. And the whole uh, realm of dementia is fascinating and frightening at the same time. It seems really complicated because it seems like there's a lot of different forms of dementia. Yes. So um, the brain is very complex and uh, there's lots of things that can make it go wrong. And dementia just basically means that the brain's not working well uh, like it used to. And so you could have dementia because you've had a couple of strokes in your brain or you had head trauma or you have this thing called Alzheimer's. These are degenerative dementias that can cause cognitive issues or maybe you're on toxins or chemotherapy or, or uh, opiates or uh, maybe you have sleep apnea or your kidney or liver may not be working well to cause toxins to go to the brain. So many, many causes of thinking problems which could result in uh, dementia. And it seems like more often than not, anytime somebody, especially an older person, begins to show some symptoms of, uh, you know, what some, some people might call feebleness or, you know, just sort of slowing down or becoming forgetful, a word like Alzheimer's begins to pop up. And I guess that may not necessarily be what's happening, right? It's a very common, you know, if you're an older individual. If you're a younger individual, it's much less common, so you should be looking for other causes. Certainly should be thinking about it because it's not a, certainly not a rare condition, uh, but you're right, there could be many other things. You shouldn't also just assume it's going to be something uh, like that, that you are doomed to get Alzheimer's, that there may be many other treatable or reversible conditions that uh, your thinking or memory loss could be related to other than Alzheimer's. And even if it turns out to be Alzheimer's, um, the key to all these conditions, any time you have problems with thinking or memory, the key is to get evaluated early because the treatments we have, all of them, even for Alzheimer's, work much better the earlier you start treatment. Talking with Dr. Douglas Shari, Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State. Well, you know, in recent years, we've been hearing terms and diseases that I think a lot of us didn't know. For instance, with Bruce Willis, the actor, aphasia and frontotemporal dementia. And then with Robin Williams, it was dementia with Lewy bodies. Can you talk about any of those? Uh, sure. So um, just like Alzheimer's, those two things that you mentioned, uh, frontotemporal dementia, uh, often with this aphasia, this language condition, uh, as well as dementia with Lewy bodies. They're both conditions where the brain builds up uh, abnormally, um, produces more of these proteins, which are normally in the brain, but they're overproduced, and they're toxic, and they start killing nerve cells. And so depending on where these proteins are building up in Alzheimer's, they... They start out, it's amyloid and tau proteins, they start out in the memory circuit, so you often have memory problems early on. In the frontotemporal condition, like with Bruce Willis, and it hits the language area, that's a different part of the brain, and these proteins will then accumulate and build up in areas that control language. And then in, like, Lewy body dementia, different proteins, these are alpha-synuclein, and those types will build up in areas that can control your motor skills, so they have trouble with coordination and, and balance, you know, falls are more common, uh, 
and then also visual spatial. So oftentimes it will be in the areas of visual processing. Uh, and so depending on where these proteins are, are building up and accumulating too much and are toxic and it hits those parts of the brain, it will influence and impact that part of the brain that uh, these proteins are, are accumulating. I guess one of the big uh, goals in the medical field is obviously would be to find a cure for these diseases, but also the earlier that they can possibly be spotted, the better chance to at least head them off or delay their effects, right? There's no question. We don't have any cures for these degenerative conditions. These are the ones where the proteins are building up and causing problems that are worsening over time, progressing, if you will. So we don't have cures for these things, but we do have treatments that were being that are being studied and some treatments that are symptomatically help uh, the individual slow down the course a little bit. As I said, there's other um, clinical trials and things like that that we're looking at right now that are designed to try to find, you know, better treatments, find medications that might help uh, slow down and, you know, eventually we are hoping to actually make a large impact with these disorders so that you slow it down or reduce its effect so much that you can really impact the patient's uh, quality of life. Are there uh, any indications for people younger, you know, I'm thinking in their 40s or 50s who maybe don't show the, the classic symptoms for another 10 or 20 years or longer, can there be possibly ways that people walk or move or talk or think or laugh, you know, any kind of early symptoms that some folks might show? Well, it's a, it's a good, excellent question that you have because um, we're, of course, looking, always looking for the earliest symptoms, uh, just like, you know, if you have a cancer, the first symptoms of a cancer or something, so you can get it early and, and have more potential treatment. The same is true for these degenerative conditions. Uh, what is really uh, advantageous, I think, for some of these degenerative conditions is that these proteins that build up uh, start building up long before you have symptoms, long before you have language problems or memory problems or visual spatial problems or motor control problems. And we are now beginning to be able to identify these in the brain, either through PET scans, these are imaging studies, or through spinal fluid biomarkers. And for some conditions, we're really good at that. So for example, Alzheimer's disease, uh, we can see these amyloid and tau proteins build up in the brain or in the spinal fluid, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years before you have your first symptoms, before you forget your keys for the first time. And so the great advantage that we have is that um, we would be able to identify uh, people that might develop these conditions and perhaps do something before it ravages the brain. Talking with Dr. Douglas Shari, uh, he's the director of cognitive neurology at Ohio State University. When people begin to show their symptoms, a lot of times, from what I understand, they're aware of what's coming, right? I mean, President Reagan wrote about the sunset of his life, and Robin Williams, who unfortunately decided to commit suicide after his diagnosis of dementia with Lewy bodies. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Well, sure. So, um, yeah, so it's a gradual, these proteins 
very gradually build up. And so it's not just one day like a stroke or, you know, head trauma or something like that. And it's a, so the whole um, characteristics of these conditions where the proteins build up, it's, it's a slow process. It occurs over years that they would have these uh, progression symptoms. So you do know and family members know and you can tell I'm just not thinking well or I'm just not talking well. Now, actually, in terms of Robin Williams, he was not diagnosed prior to his death. And one of the thought was that because no one was able to come up with a reason, he thought perhaps that he was just losing his mind in some nonspecific type of way. Um, and some people think that's probably why he may have decided to commit suicide. No one can tell what's wrong. And maybe I'm just losing it. I don't want to go out this way. Um, I want to make my own choice, perhaps. So uh, those are sort of what was hinted, you know, with his, uh, when his family were interviewed. So he was only diagnosed and said, ah, this is uh, dementia with Lewy bodies uh, with the autopsy. So uh -huh. they finally figured out, oh, yep, there's it. Here's the proteins. That's what he had. Uh, so that again goes back to the difficulty with sometimes diagnosing these people and getting it correct from the very beginning because sometimes the symptoms can be tricky, they're subtle, they're, they start off very slowly, they will progress, so there's plenty of time to think that maybe something else is doing it. That's interesting. You know, in light of Bruce Willis's diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia, I was watching some videos on YouTube of people who suffer from that, and, and some of it is truly bizarre. You've got a clinical person interviewing somebody with this disease, asking them questions. They could be asking them about the weather, and the person will give an answer about the refrigerator in the kitchen that has absolutely nothing to do with the question, and just be answering as if they're in a completely different conversation than what the clinician is asking them. Yes. Yeah, particularly with the language, you know, you have trouble both with sometimes getting the words out, or some people have more trouble with the uh, comprehension issue. All of this must just make it fascinating and yet complex and frustrating at the same time for somebody in your position. Well, it's um, that's why we have uh, such uh, a good uh, education program. So um, we teach physicians and providers uh, how to diagnose these conditions. Uh, we're developing better treatments uh, to see or better diagnostic methods, I should say, better biomarkers to see if we can um, help improve uh, ways to diagnose earlier. The last time we talked to you, there was a, a study that you were doing about short-term memory. Are there any things going on at the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders that uh, folks can enroll in or, or find out more about? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we have over 30 recruiting studies right now at our center, um, anywhere from people that have you know, before they have symptoms, but maybe have amyloid in their in their PET or CSF, to people with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's. Uh, we have Alzheimer's studies. We have dementia with Lewy body studies. Uh, we have biomarker studies. We're doing studies with um, behaviors, finding better treatments for behaviors. We're just starting right now the first in human uh, trial for a growth factor that we're injecting into the brains of people with Alzheimer's to see if that may uh, help. So uh, if there's any interest in uh, doing, uh, helping others and getting some of these treatments out earlier, we're sort of blessed in 
um, with the altruism of people that are willing to participate in clinical trials, and uh, we would be happy to um, talk to them about options uh, for clinical trials if they're interested. Okay, and that's again through the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State. I did want to ask one kind of general question. Some people are good at recognizing faces, but not names, and other people are better at remembering names, but not necessarily faces. Is there any connection between those two, or is one better than the other? I wouldn't say one's better than the other. Uh, it often is often is related to what the talent of the individual is. So. Some people are, are very good with one or the other, and uh, maybe some are not good with either one. Um, so it's pretty normal as you get older to forget people's names. So it's not a big, um, as big a concern. Uh, we're a little slower processing as we get older. We may not come up with a person's name right away, and so that comes across as forgetting, uh, you know, their name momentarily. But but no, I think that is more suggestive of just uh, your normal talents, whether you are a better face person or you're a better uh, name person. And when it comes to Alzheimer's or some of these uh, dementia disorders, is it a certainty at this point that it is uh, the, this plaque that's building up, or is, is there any chance that it could be a virus? That I remember reading some articles years ago about some doctors that were concerned about the possibility, at least like during open brain surgery that it could be contagious because it might be a virus or something? So there's no evidence that things like Alzheimer's are uh, related to a virus. I mean, people are still looking at those things. I won't say there's zero chance. Anything is possible, but uh, people have been looking at this for Alzheimer's, for example, for, for many, many years, and we're not seeing like these viral particles in the brain after they die, and it's mostly genetic uh, that uh, will have you increase the risk of building up these proteins. That definitely is known for sure, the genetic risk for Alzheimer's, and that's also true for some of these other degenerative conditions, although less so for Lewy body and frontotemporal conditions. And uh, we're just sort of investigating exactly uh, how it builds up, and we do know that the inflammatory system is involved uh, these toxic little proteins cause your immune system to sort of rev up, and that doesn't help the brain either. And so we're looking at ways to sort of inhibit the immune system as it, involve, as it impacts these uh, proteins. So there's lots of uh, data that suggests immune system, the proteinopathies, these proteins building up, and genetics, but very little to suggest an infectious process. And as knowledge increases and and uh, more is known about these, perhaps more cases will be spotted, which would would you know indicate that it's more prevalent. But is there any indication that people are getting it more often than maybe they did fifty years ago or a hundred years ago? I think that the prevalence is the same, but it's related more to I think more people have these conditions now because people are living longer. Mm -hmm. And this is a disease mostly of older age people, so it increases every decade of life until you get to about 100. So, you know, you more percentage of people with 80 uh, years of age or older have it than 70, and uh, there's more with 90 if you're in your 90s, et cetera. So because we're doing so much better with medical uh, care and, you know, heart care and diabetes care and cholesterol care, 
that uh, people are living longer, uh, don't die early on of their heart attacks or things like that. And so then we're just seeing more people that eventually get these brain disorders. So I think that it probably is just about the same as it ever was. We're just seeing more because people are living longer. Just a moment or two to go with Dr. Douglas Shawry from the direct. He's the director of uh, cognitive neurology at Ohio State University. Well, this is something that, you know, it's frightening in the sense that, you know, if this starts to happen to you or if you begin to realize it's happening to you, you know, there, you have no control over something like this and it, and it would seemingly be hitting you out of the blue. What sort of advice would you give to a family or an individual who maybe has just been recently diagnosed with some sort of dementia or fears that they may have it? Well, the biggest thing I would suggest is if you or a loved one, a person, a family member, a spouse who knows you well, has noticed a change over the last year that you're just not quite as sharp, something is is, uh, progressed, something is worse in terms of memory or thinking, really it's very prudent to get into your doctor to get it checked out because the treatments that we have for these conditions are so much better and so much more options uh, to treat early on, like you would think of any medical condition, uh, than if you wait. Or you say, well, I, I really don't even want to think about it. I'll just put it off or I won't mention anything. Uh, that's not the correct response. We should uh, check it out early get in to see your physician, and as we're developing more disease-modifying therapies, there were two that just came out that the FDA approved so far for Alzheimer's disease. We are getting much better treatments, and they only work if you get um, identified early. So uh, check in with your primary care doctor. Uh, You can take the uh, SAGE test at home, the one that we developed at Ohio State, a pen and paper test, uh, to get a... um, assessment of your current thinking, uh, but just check yourself out, get in to see your physician, and uh, evaluate it as soon as you can. Do you see at some point a cure for some of this, or are they connected enough that if, you know, a cure is found for Alzheimer's, will it also likely be effective against Lewy bodies or Parkinson's or some of these other ailments? it's unlikely that it would uh, because there are different proteins that build up. So you would have to, if you're targeting these toxic proteins, you probably would have to have a little change in target. But some of the same uh, methods might be usable from one condition to another. You know, know how to target these toxic proteins, know how to, um, you know, identify them and get them out of your uh, body or out of your brain, I should say. So definitely we borrow, uh, you know, techniques and and ways to deal with things, especially with the immune system, you know, with uh, inflammatory inflammatory disorders, multiple sclerosis, cancer. We we all borrow from each other to try to find the best um, methods to try to attack the uh, disease that we're studying, in this case, uh, uh, dementia, degenerative dementia conditions. Dr. Douglas Shawry joining us. He is the Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State. Anything else you'd like to add? I think that's basically the main thing. If you notice something, get in to be seen because we're developing. uh, There's some conditions with the memory or thinking that are very treatable, reversible. You don't want to miss those. And even some of these degenerative conditions uh, that tend to progress. uh, There's clinical trials and there's new treatments that are being developed that would work better. 
something earlier you're diagnosed. So that would be my uh, lead to everyone is to get in and, and be evaluated. Okay, Dr. Douglas Shari, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.